You're listening to Popaganda, the feminism and pop culture podcast. Today we're talking about real-life women in space. Ever since humans found out about other planets, we've fantasized about traveling there ourselves. Now, several groups are proposing projects that would send real-life people to Mars in just a decade or two, after they can work out the logistical details. Here's the pitch from maybe the best-known of these projects, Mars One. It is Mars One's goal to establish a permanent human settlement on Mars. Human settlement on Mars is the next great leap for humankind. This exploration of the solar system will bring the human race closer together. Mars is the next step in the voyage into the universe. Sounds pretty good, right? To accomplish this first human colony supposedly launching in 2026, Mars One opened up their coveted future Mars colony spots to anyone in the world who wanted to apply. The plan is to fund the trip primarily through advertising and by recording the whole experience as a reality show. This might raise eyebrows among skeptics, that would be me, but thousands of people jumped at the chance to be part of Mars One. This past spring, the nonprofit running the project narrowed down the applicant pool to 100 brave, aspiring space travelers. Writer Jessica Franken interviewed five of the women who want to be part of Mars One for an article in the Nerds issue of Bitch. Her article is called Meet the Martians. Five women from the Mars One space program share their thoughts on leaving Earth forever. Oh yeah, it's a one-way ticket to Mars. Jessica has a deep interest in science. For her master's degree, she studied the intersection of gender, fiction, and public perceptions of science. I called up Jessica Franken at her home in Minneapolis to talk about why so many people want to go to Mars. So Jessica, for your article, you interviewed uh, five women who want to leave Earth to head for Mars on a future possible mission to Mars. Can you tell me about what got you interested in this potential future Mars exploration project to begin with? Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating experiment with some really remarkable candidates involved. Um, and so Mars One, I'll just give you a little overview. It's a little different than some of the other, um, you know, potential journeys to Mars that are out there. It's a nonprofit, and their goal is to establish a permanent human settlement on Mars with the first four-person crew leaving as early as 2026 or 2027. Um, so not, they're not the only people with with Mars and their sites, certainly, but they've gained a lot of media attention. And I think that um, there are several reasons for that. You know, the funding model is definitely one. They're attempting to finance the journey largely through donations and advertising revenue. And second is that the trips to Mars are one way. So they'll send additional four-person crews every 26 months, but none of the travelers will return to Earth. Um, and another reason I think that people have been really picking up on this story is that they put out an open call to anyone in the world who wanted to apply to be an astronaut with Mars One. So there's this really wide variety of people who've made it to the current round of 100 finalists. And it's not just, um, it's not just people with scientific and military backgrounds, and it's not just people from countries with established human spaceflight capabilities. Um, so coming from a sort of feminist perspective, what interested me in the topic was the exploring the philosophy of, you know, opening space up to people who haven't traditionally been able to see themselves there. And I think it's part of a larger discussion about democratizing space. So with the rapid rise of the commercial space industry and falling technology costs, the hope is that more people will have access to things um, 
like microsatellites. So there's this, um, it's now, you know, within the realm of possibility for, say, a high school science class to raise enough money to send an experiment into near space on a microsatellite. Um, so, but human spaceflight is obviously much more expensive and complicated. And, um, you know, space tourism is set to become more common, but that'll be at least initially restricted to people with pretty massive disposable incomes. What's interesting about the Mars One project that you mentioned is it's a more democratic approach, that there are people who wound up in the final 100 candidates that were chosen potentially for these this future colony um, who wouldn't have ever been chosen by NASA or the Russian space program as the top cosmonaut. So can you tell us a little bit about like the women that you interviewed and uh, what makes them different potentially than the typical astronaut that we've seen? Yeah, I mean, it's like this idea of quote unquote ordinary people getting the chance to settle another planet, even though you know, when you talk to the candidates, they're, they're not ordinary. They're, they're extraordinary people who are really passionate about this cause. Um, and so the five people that I talked to, were, they were really inspiring. And I had, you know, like a, a contact high from their passion. They were great. Um, I talked to Kenya Armbrister, who is a project manager for a pharmaceutical company. Um, and Sue Ann Pien, who is an actress and she works at a technology firm. And Sabrina Suravec, who's an English teacher and artist in Japan. So those were three people who were not coming to this with like a scientific background. And then I talked to Kelly Girardi, who's a business development specialist for a rocket technology company, and Laura Smith Velasquez, who's a human factors engineer for an aerospace company. And so they were more, um, you know, already involved in aerospace. And so I really wanted to talk to people with coming from, um, you know, a variety of backgrounds, including people who already work in space science and those who work outside of it. I mean, right now, this mission is all theoretical. It's, it seems like mm-hmm. missions to Mars are always 20 years out. In the next 20 years, <laughs> yep. we're sending somebody. Um, but there are actually people going to space right now who are tourists who can afford to shell out for that. We've got reality show stars. We've got Russian billionaires, people who can pay a lot of money to get up into orbit. Um, so I just think that's interesting to consider as we're looking forward to, like, what is the future of space? Is it something that um, is going to be a place for the super rich? You know, obviously there are immense costs associated with going. So, um, you know, I read this interview with Elon Musk, who is the head of SpaceX, and he's working on um, a Mars mission too. And he's sort of like, the, the first people who go will be the people who can afford to go. You know, and on one hand, you can understand why that is. But on the other hand, you know, it sets up this um, you know, the situation in which the settling of a new world, like the first off-Earth human colony, um, you know, is just the richest people from Earth. And so, um, you know, when I was talking to Kelly for the interviews, she said something, she talked a lot about the importance of diversifying access to human space travel and not just to, you know, sending satellites. And she said something like, I bet I can find it. She said, we can't expect to have a super productive future in space if there's no current relation between normal citizens and the space industry. And so, you know, she said, even though we know conceptually that technologies we use, like GPS, things like that, those come from the space program and they're a benefit to us from the space program. You know, Kelly says that it's difficult for people to really buy in unless they can imagine themselves as part of it. And I should say just briefly that NASA, you know, looks incredibly different 
from how it did 50 years ago. And so I think that there are people who can see themselves as NASA astronauts now that maybe wouldn't have thought of it if they grew up a generation ago. It um, looks looks incredibly different, meaning there's more women, there's more people of color at NASA than there yes. were in those in those, you know, photos of the NASA space room in the 1950s. For sure. Yeah, so the the most recent astronaut class at NASA from 2013 is the first that achieved gender parity, and so it was four women and four men. Um, so, you know, I think that that's, you know, there are a lot of people who see people who look like them, you know, working on the International Space Station, and that's a relatively new thing. Well, and the importance of representation in sort of thinking about and conceptualizing space travel, I think some people might think that sounds kind of silly because, you know, we're not sending a lot of humans uh, to Mars anytime in the next few years. But it kind of it kind of relates to an interest in science and math and technology. You know, the people who um, you might not ever aspire to go to Mars if you don't see yourself as an astronaut. But if you don't see yourself as an astronaut, you also might... Uh, never wind up uh, thinking about being a physicist or a mathematician or getting into science in that realm. And I know that you did, you've done some work in a master's program on the relationship between uh, gender uh, fiction and public perceptions of science. So can you talk to us a little bit about um, how pop culture images of space travel and science fiction images of space travel uh, help shape our ideas of who can actually work as a mathematician, a physicist, or an astronaut? Yeah, and I think, you know, this is something that's definitely been talked about in Bitch a lot and really well, probably better than I could do it here, but um, just like the importance of representation, it really, really matters. I'm probably going to get into trouble for talking about the Martian Chronicles, but um, I read it for the first time this summer, and so... That's, that's the series by Ray Bradbury, the classic yes, sci-fi series, yeah. the Martian Chronicles, yeah. And so, like, I know that... Every time I talk about, you know, sexism in science fiction from that era, I just get attacked about, like, you can't hold it to the same standards as today, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, you know, if he can imagine, if he could imagine this, this Martian race where people, you know, cook dinner in this silver lava and they have dust that cleans the house for them, you know, like, all these things, like, but he couldn't imagine that like one of the crew members was a woman, you know, like that kind of thing. And I think it's like, so all these waves of men go up to Mars in that book. And then there's one line about like, everybody knew who the first women would be. And they send up, you know, like a rocket full of prostitutes. So, <laughs> um, so anyway, so I'm going off on a tangent, but I think that, um, you know, many diverse roles for women is really important. I guess I feel two ways about it, that both talking about Mars and space travel is really important for fostering an interest in science and thinking about the world beyond our own. And then on a personal level, I'm like, who has time to think about space when we have to worry about, you know, uh, making rent this week or uh, having enough food and uh, mm -hmm. having, you know, all, all sorts of sort of real life practical issues that are happening in our lives right now, thinking about issues about equality in space in a future possible trip can seem so far off and so distant. Yeah, and, you know, I sort of brought that up in my interview. I was asking, you know, does, does focusing on this very sort of long-range, huge project in outer space sort of take away from the urgency of problems on Earth? Um, and, and all the candidates that I talked to were really clear about how 
you know, well, first of all, it's not one or the other. You know, we can work on multiple things at once, um, you know, which we find in feminism, like just because we want to work on gender, like pay equality doesn't mean that we can't, you know, fight sexual assault, things like that. Like we can work on multiple things at once. Um, and it's also not like we can just take that lump sum of money that's going to space right now and like put it into pre-K education or something, you know, like that's not how it works. Um, and also the, the candidates I interviewed talked a lot about the benefits that we get from the space program, you know, here on earth, like all the, you know, the medical technologies and everything that's come from the space program. And Sue Ann talked about, you know, any colony on Mars is going to have to be extremely sustainable um, and sustainability looks different on Mars because the resources are different. But, you know, there's a lot of research going into, you know, hydroponic crops and sort of, you know, sustainable ways to grow food and to produce fuel. And so thinking about those things and how they might work for a Mars colony, that research will benefit Earth as well. So talk to me more about the women who want to be on this Mars One trip. I mean, these are people who will have to not only orient their entire lives around someday leaving from Mars, but as you mentioned, it's a one-way ticket. They're saying goodbye to their whole lives here. What what motivates people to do that? Yeah, um, well, I think, you know, something that Kelly said really struck me because people ask them a lot about, like, but it's forever, you know, like, you're doing this forever. And Kelly was like, what does forever really mean for me, you know, like by the time I go, it's maybe like 30 years. So she just thinks about it like someone who retires to Florida and doesn't go back to Brooklyn again. Or, um, you know, it's like people are like, you're going to die on Mars. And they forget that, you know, I, hopefully there are these years in between where they're, you know, setting up this research outpost and, you know, contributing to something that they really believe in. Because everyone I talk to feels very strongly that it's, um, it's important, you know, for the human species to be a multi-planet species, and they have various reasons for feeling that. But um, you know, they w would be really honored to be to be a part of that. And it's not, you know, they're not being really they're not being callous about leaving, and they're going to leave people they love, and they're going to leave the Earth they love. But they feel like this is a way that they can really contribute, and that they have, you know, the right personality. To, to be successful. Let's talk about one more thing before you go, and that's the way that this program is funded. So we talked at the beginning about how uh, the Mars One system is looking for people who aren't traditional astronauts to get a more diverse mix to make a potential actual Mars colony. And so the way that the, that the trip is going to be funded is by producing a reality show that will be back here on Earth and, and advertising associated with that reality show around the trip. This to me sounds like such a science fiction idea. I just, <laughs> you know, it brings to mind uh, sort of a dystopian future where we're all sitting and watching uh, a reality <laughs> show about uh, people potentially dying in space and wondering, you know, who's going to murder who on the spacecraft? Are they going to live for the first day on Mars? Um, what What do you think about turning all of this, you know, this... In, in the one hand, it's a real, like, boon for science. On the other hand, it's going to be turned into a reality show. Yeah, and, you know, I think that there's, that Mars One is sort of trying to change how they talk about it to, like, it's a documentary. Um, and, I mean, hopefully it won't be as dramatic as, as all that <laughs> you said. Um, but I think, you know, there is, like, some 
some precedent for the media being, you know, documenting astronaut training. Um, and I know that the, the Canadian Space Agency has put some astronaut training videos, you know, on their website before as they go through simulations and trials. Um, and, you know, Kelly in the interview even talked about it as, you know, George Mallory, his, you know, did a summit of Mount Everest that was financed by a documentarian. Um, so, like, that was his way to get there. Um, so, but I, you know, not everybody I talked to was, like, super jazzed about that part of it. Um, it depends, I think, on, on their personality and how sort of private they are. Um, but they did talk about how it'll be a really great way for people to see what it really takes to get ready to go to space um, and to see all the, the, you know, the different things that you wouldn't think about that you'll have to deal with in microgravity and to be really, um, you know, to be invested in how hard people are working and the things that have to be overcome to get people into space. Thanks to writer Jessica Franken. You can follow her on Twitter at JES3ICA. Her feed is a weird mix of science insights and rants about women's basketball. 